All right, so we get to Romans 14. Let me give you a quick background. What's happening in Romans 14, Paul's writing to the believers at Rome, and you got to understand that there are a lot of people that are getting saved, and many of those people are coming out of a Jewish background. And those that got saved out of a Jewish background, if you've read the Bible, you know that they, for the most part, probably followed the Mosaic Law. They probably followed the dietary standards in the book of Leviticus. And, and if you want a, 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 a read that's a little difficult, read the book of Leviticus, because, man, it spells out everything that's clean and unclean, according to the Old Testament, right? Like right now, man, if we had bacon-wrapped shrimp, that's like the double whammy, man. That's like double unclean, because in the Old Testament, for the Jew, that wasn't allowed. And listen, a lot of those things that were ceremonial and in the Mosaic law, all of those things pointed to a person. They pointed to Christ. As a matter of fact, Christ, the Bible tells us in Romans 10 and verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And, and so the point is, the point is, all of those Old Testament things pointed to Christ who fulfilled the law. So you had, you had Jewish people that were coming out of Judaism and getting saved. They were receiving the gospel. But you also had people that weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles, like, like you and I. They didn't grow up in a Jewish heritage or Jewish culture. They probably were idolaters. They probably offered sacrifices to idols. They ate pork and bacon and, you know, shrimp and catfish and all the things that were like forbidden in the Levitical law. And then they get saved and these Jews get saved and they're now all one in Christ. They're, they're part of the church. They're part of one in Christ. And, and so what's happening is somebody coming out of that, that mosaic system would look at a Gentile and look at what he's eating and be like, man, you can't be right with God if you're eating that. But then these Gentiles would, would be looking at the Jewish guys that are steeped in tradition and say, man, you don't have to not eat these things. Can you, have you smelled the bacon cooking? I mean, hello. And I was griddling, uh, working on my griddle uh, last week. We're doing some hamburgers with some bacon, and my kids come out the back door, and you know, the whole thing is like covered in bacon. It was awesome. And uh, my kids come out the back door, and my kids love to eat like grilled food and meat. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But my, both of my daughters, two separate occasions, walk out the door, and all, they just walk by man, that smells good. And they just kind of go about their business, you know, but they're just like, man, that smells good. And so Gentiles, man, in the early church, you know, they're just eating what they eat and they got Jewish brethren that are kind of turning their nose at them. And so there was a disconnect, right? Even, even to the point that, listen, some of those things that the, the Gentiles were eating could have possibly been offered to idols. Like, like just like there was a mosaic system of sacrifices because the devil is the greatest counterfeiter of God and of Jesus Christ, the devil established animal sacrifices for idolatry and false religion. And so Paul deals with that in Romans 14. He also deals with it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'll, I'll just have you look at the verses on the screen. Paul, again, is kind of dealing with this same point. He says in verse 4, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things which are offered to sacrifice unto idols... We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is none other God but one. In other words, Paul says, listen, okay, yeah, uh, uh, some people may be eating meat that was offered to a pagan god, but guess what? There's really no other god but one god, and it is the god of the Bible. It's Jehovah God. First, First Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 to 8 says, how be it? 
There is not in every man that knowledge. For some, with conscience of the idol unto this hour, eat, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we, if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. And the point Paul is making is, listen, in Christ, the dietary standard doesn't make you spiritual or not spiritual. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? He, he, he's breaking down legalism, but he's also teaching about the liberty that you have in Christ. Now listen, you say, well, that's not a big deal. Well, you need to understand that from cover to cover in the Bible, God has a lot to say about man's diet. As a matter of fact, if we, we don't have the time, but in, in the Garden of Eden, if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 1, both man and animals were strict veg- vegetarians. They only ate the herb-bearing seed that was on the face of the earth. Both, both man was a vegetarian and all of the animals ate the herb life, the, 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 the every green herb for meat. And so we know from the garden all the way to the flood, that's the way God established it. That's the dietary standard. And then at the flood, when, when Noah comes off the ark, God gives him instruction and he says in, in Genesis 9 and verse 3, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. In other words, after the flood, God allowed man to eat meat, to eat animals, to eat crispy critters, however you want to point it out. And he didn't give any restriction. And so in Genesis chapter 9, it was a free-for-all. You can eat whatever you want. Just don't eat anything that's alive. You have to drain the blood, Genesis chapter 9 and verse 4. In other words, if you can kill it, you can eat it. God's given it to you for provision. And then after the flood, the Levitical law came later. And when God gave the Ten Commandments and God established the book of Leviticus and the Leviticus system... God took some of those animals that were previously eaten, and then he says, okay, you can't eat that now because it's unclean. But these are the animals that you can eat, and they're clean. And remember, the Levitical system was for the priesthood, and all of those things pointed to Christ. They were a shadow of heavenly things. And now in the New Testament, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, what God says, every creature is good for food. And so now God has lifted the restriction on the dietary standard. Uh, one place we could go, we don't have it on the screen, uh, is, is 1 Timothy chapter 4. But it talks about in 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4, that in the last days there are going to be people that try to put you back in bondage under a Old Testament dietary restriction. In other words, there will be false prophets that will somehow, let me just read the verse, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 3, It says, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And the point is, God now has us in a time where whatever you eat doesn't make you spiritual or not spiritual. You can eat whatever you want. We get done in just a few minutes, you go eat lunch, man, and God's not going to judge you and nobody else should judge you because of what you eat or don't eat. But let me just tell you, in the church age, that's the rule. But listen, there's coming a time future in the millennium, the thousand-year reign, 
where all of the animal kingdom is going to become vegetarian again. You go to Africa right now and you go on a safari and you go watch the lions. The lions ain't eating grass. They're eating gazelles. Tasty little fast creatures. They're eating elephants. They're eating flesh. But according to the word of God, when Christ rules and reigns on this planet for a thousand years, the dietary standards will again change. You say, why is that, why is that important? Because you had better know where you are on God's calendar. You had better understand what God requires of you during this time period, what's required and what's not required. In other words, if we're not careful, if we put ourselves in the wrong dispensation, we will have a legalistic standard that doesn't apply for now. Hello? And, and that'll extend not only to what we eat, but what days we observe, what we wear, whether or not we have a beard, how long our hair is. Do you understand what I'm saying? We, we can almost create a legalist. We will create a legalistic standard if we don't land where we are dispensationally in the Bible. And so that's what Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 14. This morning, God is going to teach us about individual liberty. Uh, and, and, and I'll say that this covers a multitude of areas. We're going to see God talk about what we eat and, and what days we observe but can I just tell you, this principle governs all things that are the gray areas of Christianity. In other words, if there's not black and white Bible for a thing, for a truth, then God does give us room for liberty in our life. And so let's get to it. Number one, I want to show you that there is a diversity of liberty in the body of Christ. There's a diversity of liberty because there's a diversity of maturity. And, and go back to verse one. It says, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eateth herbs. And, and I just want to make the point this morning that, that whether or not you, you choose to, to follow a certain dietary standard, listen, between you and the Lord, you can do whatever you want. You can eat whatever you want as it relates to the Lord. But, but there is a difference, God says, there are some that are weak in faith and there are some that are strong in faith. And so the issue is spiritual maturity, and, and there is a div there's a diversity of maturity in this room. Can I just tell you, we have brand new Christians in this room. We probably have unsaved people in this room. We probably have maturing Christians, and we have people that are really mature in this room. And so each of us are at a different level of faith, and you ought to appreciate that, by the way. You ought to appreciate the diversity that we have in Christ. And because we're at different levels of maturity... Well, there's going to be a different level of, of liberty in each of our lives. When he talks about being weak in the faith, the faith is just the body of doctrine that we believe. When you, when you study that phrase, the faith, one of the places you'll land is in Acts chapter 16 and verse 5. It says that the churches were established in the faith. They weren't established in, in just faith. They were established in and the faith, something very specific. It's the body of doctrine that we adhere to, that we hold to. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, it says, Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. And so we're talking about people that are weak in the faith, and we're talking about people that are strong in the faith. And so here's the key in your notes. Look, within the body of Christ... There are people in all stages 
of spiritual maturity. There are people in all stages of spiritual maturity, and, and I think I listed those out in your notes. It starts with a babe in Christ, and a babe in Christ is someone who's born again. The Bible says that, it, that John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, man, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Salvation is a birth. And, and listen, if you just recently got saved, rejoice because you're born into God's family. That's what salvation is. It's a birth into God's family. But listen, that's not the end of Christianity. That's the beginning. That's the beginning of Christianity. And that, that progression goes from babes to little children and even to children. But even spiritual children, man, they're, they're still tossed to and fro with, with, with every wind of doctrine. Just like physical children aren't mature, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritual, spiritual children aren't mature, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. I mean, I mean, they have to grow. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that children are tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. And so even people that are born again, that are little children and children, they're still weak in the faith. They're, they're growing but we don't despise them. We encourage them because they need to grow. It's not till you hit this fourth stage of maturity, this young man stage, that you become strong in the Word of God. So 1 John chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us, John writes and he says, I've written unto you fathers because you've known him from the, that's from the beginning. Listen, here it is. I've written unto you young men because ye are what? You're strong. Strong in what? The faith. You're strong in the Word of God. You're strong in faith. The Word of God abides in you. And so babes, little children, children, they're all weak in faith. It's not till a person becomes a spiritual young man that they become strong in the faith. And, and so the point is, and here's the key, and, and we'll move on, because there will always be a diversity of maturity in the body of Christ, we should be willing to receive those that aren't yet strong in the faith. Listen, we need to understand, and especially if you're in this room and you are mature in the Lord in the sense that you have been discipled, you have been through ministry tools and training, you lead people to Christ, you disciple other people, I'm talking to you because there's always a diversity of maturity in the body of Christ. You have to make sure that you are receiving those that are not yet strong in the faith. In other words, the burden of maturity is on you, strong Christian, mature Christian. You need to understand that the strong, Romans 15 and verse 1, the strong Christian in the faith ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Oh, uh, do I have Romans 15 and verse 1 on the screen? I don't. You need, to, you need to probably flip over in your Bible to Romans 15 and verse 1. It should be a page over if we're in Romans 14. Let, let me just give you the verse here. Paul includes himself and in those that are spiritually strong. He says, we then that are strong. Paul knew he was mature in the Lord, okay? But he said, we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please who? Oh, so, so, the, so the strong Christian that has the liberty to do some things has the burden and the responsibility to not live a life that pleases themselves. Hello? Now, now here's the way it shakes out, and you already know where this sermon's going. 
Most of the time, people get to a level of maturity where they can have liberty to do some things and eat some things and experience some things and whatever. It's gray areas in Christianity. But what they do is they exercise their liberty to please themselves instead of bearing the infirmities of the weak. And I just want you to understand, the minute you think you're mature, well, if you're not bearing the infirmities of the weak, you probably aren't. You're probably not as mature as you think you are. God says there's a diversity within our body. And and so our Christian liberty must take into account those that are weak in the faith. You have a responsibility to your weaker brother and sister in the faith, which leads us to point number two very quickly is the responsibility of liberty. And, And so what we're talking about is eating things offered to idols or not eating things offered to idols. You got one guy who's strong in the faith, and he says, man, I can eat anything. Oh, oh, they sold this out the meat market uh, from the idol. These guys are worshiping Baal or whatever. They sacrifice this cow to Baal or whatever, and then they're selling you know, the, the short ribs out the back. They're, they're selling the ribeyes out the back. I'll take four. And, and the dude's going home and eating them with a clear conscience because he knows that Baal's not real, because he knows that there is one God There's another guy who maybe used to be wrapped up in that lifestyle. He was the guy bringing the sacrifice to Baal. And now to see that meat being offered, he he associates and identifies that meat with that idol. And because of his conscience, he can't eat that. So who's right? Yes. Yes. Okay. But but here's how it shakes out. Look at verse 3. Let not him that eateth, in other words, the strong in faith, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Here's the truth you want to get in your, in your, in your notes. Here's the first truth that you need to get. Number one, those strong in the faith generally despise those that are weak in the faith. That's how it shakes out. That's how it shakes out. Because why in the world don't you have the faith that I have? Why aren't you strong enough in the faith like I am? Why don't you know, like I know, that there's no God but one? Why don't you know that God made that cow, and it doesn't matter who it was offered to, it's still good meat? Do you understand what I'm saying? And so listen, those that are strong in faith, many times will distance themselves from those who are weak in the faith. I know none of you do that. We're talking about those other strong Christians. But that's generally how it shakes out. Because the strong Christian is strong in the faith, and because he gets impatient with those that are weak in the faith, he despises them. But here's the other truth you need to get. And because some of you in this room are strong in faith, but the reality is some of you are weak in faith. And here's what you do. Here's your sin. Here's the second truth. Those that are weak in the faith generally judge those who are strong in the faith. That's how it works. That's how it works. And, and, and can I just tell you, that's really the litmus test of where you probably are. Because if you find yourself judging other people's liberty, you're probably weak in the faith. That, that's just kind of the litmus test right there. When, when you have a standard that somebody else is not meeting, but you yourself don't have a clear conscience because of your own experiences or your lack of maturity, all of a sudden, man, everybody's on your radar 
and everybody's your target. And, and you've already judged how those people can't be right with God because of what they eat, what they wear, how long their beard is, the fact they don't wear a tie on Sunday. Do you understand what I'm saying? Those that are weak in faith generally judge those who are strong in the faith. In other words, many times it's impossible for those who are spiritually weak to differentiate between preference and doctrine. Because the Bible doesn't tell you what day to wear a tie. And the Bible doesn't tell you how long your dress ought to be. And the Bible doesn't tell you how long your beard ought to be. And what color you ought to wear. And, and what you ought to be eating. Do, do you understand for the New Testament church? And yet, sometimes you take your preference and make a legalistic standard against your brother that's unbiblical. That's weak in faith, and you're judging your brother. So here's the reality. Matthew 15, and, and we're not going to read all of it, but Matthew 15, Jesus wants us to understand, and again, we're talking about meat, but again, this, this plays into all different levels of liberty, individual liberty. Jesus says that nothing that goes in your mouth can defile you. In other words, it's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. Matthew 15, we'll pick it up uh, in verse 15. Jesus said, Are ye yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draught. That's King James for, well, I won't explain what that's for. You get the picture. You guys got it? You know how that works? Okay. Just making sure. We've got a couple of nurses in here to help you understand that if you, if you need some clar clarification. But look what he says in verse 18. Those things which proceed out of the mouth. Okay, these are, these are things coming out of the mouth. They come forth from where? Oh, there it is. The heart. And they defile the man. Here they are. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands, that doesn't defile a man. I mean, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were looking at the disciples and saying, bro, don't you know you, you can't eat without washing your hands? And if you're not washing your hands, you're unclean, according to our religious standard. And the Lord had to, had to, had to have a come to Jesus meeting, come to him meeting. He was like, He's like, hey, are you guys without understanding? It's not what goes in that, that defiles a man. It's what comes out. Romans 14, verse 17. This is a, a verse that you probably need to find in your Bible and highlight it. It's, it's further in the chapter. The Bible says that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy in the Holy Ghost. In other words, the kingdom of God is not the physical things in this life. But it's the spiritual things in this life. It's righteousness, it's peace, it's joy in the Holy Ghost. Now listen, you saying, Jay, I could go eat donuts all day, every day, and be right with God? Okay, yeah, you could, and you're probably going to see them a lot sooner if you do that. <laughs> you know, some of us, like Paul, have a desire to depart, and we're going to speed the process with our diet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, there, there is common sense as it relates to our diet for health and exercise and all those different things, man, for sure, for sure. But when you ascribe a level of spirituality to that that is not biblical, you, you move into legalism instead of liberty. So I can eat three donuts and still be right with God. 
I can. I can. And you can choose to eat no donuts. And you're just as right with God as I am. And I may check out a lot sooner, you know, but, but either way, I'm right with God and you're right with God. And the point is, the point is that we have a responsibility toward each other to make sure that we're not despising each other and make sure that we're not judging each other in things that don't have a clear biblical standard. Now, listen, if you try to argue that fornication or adultery is okay in your life, you violated a clear biblical standard. If you, if you want to argue that drunkenness for you is okay, you've already violated Scripture. We're talking about things that, that, that are those areas that aren't spelled out clearly. And so let's go quickly. Number three, we see the diversity of liberty and we see the responsibility of liberty that we're to have to each other. Number, number three, we need to understand that there is an individuality of liberty. There's an individuality of liberty and so if we pick it up in verse 5, it says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it to the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord doth he not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. And so the point is, we're dealing with one man and another man. And so there's individuality. And, and the two areas that Paul is addressing in this passage are meat, and now he's addressing days, which is another hot topic in Christianity. I mean, I mean for sure, right? Can you eat that? Can you not eat that? Can you partake of that? What goes in your mouth? Well, well the second thing that he deals with is days. And listen, in the Old Testament, listen, there were holy days under the Mosaic law, there were Sabbaths, there were feast days, there were all these days that were to be observed. But listen, that was under the law. They were, they were considered holy to God, but you need to know that those days and those ceremonies and those feasts, they all point to Christ. Colossians chapter 2, look at verses 16 and 17. It says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink. Or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. And there's not a period right there. There's a colon because he's about to explain what these things are. Which are all of these things, meat, drink, respect of holy days, new moon, Sabbaths. All of those Old Testament standards are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. The point is... Those had a time and a purpose and a place, and they all pointed to Christ. And now Christ came and he fulfilled the law. They were a shadow. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 says that the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. The point is, all of that stuff pointed to Christ. And so... And so there are some denominations that would say, you still got to keep the Sabbath now because it was commanded in the Old Testament. Well, listen, if you want to worship God on Saturday, by the way, Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sunday is the first day of the week. The Sabbath is the seventh day, the day of rest, okay? But listen, if you want to gather and worship on that day and that's what you and the body that you're a part of want to do, then man, do it because they're 
There's no restriction against that. But when you say that that's a doctrine and that you have to meet on the Sabbath because God instituted it in the Old Testament and it still applies to us today, you violated Scripture. You've stepped outside the boundaries of solid doctrine. Let me tell you this. Listen, we meet on the first day of the week. And as you go through the Bible, when you read the book of Acts, when you read 1 Corinthians 16, we know that the disciples came together. Acts 20 and verse 7, they broke bread on the first day of the week. Paul preached to them on the first day of the week. Okay. It also says that, it, it, I don't know if I have Acts up there. Acts 20 and verse 7, it also says that Paul preached till midnight. You might want to get a donut. We're going to be here, or three. <laughs> yeah, we'll all be seeing Jesus soon. So, so listen, there is a pattern in the New Testament to meet on the first day of the week as new believers, but is it ever spelled out, you have to meet on the first day of the week as Christians? It's not spelled out. It's absolute. Do you know there are places in this world that if you meet on the first day of the week as Christians, it is your death sentence. The government is going to come in and absolutely take you hostage imprison you, beat you, and possibly kill you. Why? Because they're anti-Christ. They're anti-Christian. So can a church have church on any day of the week? Well, the answer is yeah, of course they can. There's, there's no set clear New Testament requirement. We see the pattern of the first day of the week, but listen, that's impossible in some places. And so they do what they have to do. It may, we have a church that meets on Sunday nights in our building. Are they less spiritual because they meet on Sunday night? Are you kidding me? That, that's a legalistic standard. They have liberty to meet whenever they can have a, an open facility. Does that make sense? Listen, let's talk about things like Easter and Christmas and birthdays, right? I mean, Easter certainly, historically, is a pagan holiday. I mean, it takes just a little bit of study to figure that out. But listen, Christians all over the world celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ at Easter. So, so does it mean that Christians are worshiping Ishtar, the goddess of fertility? Absolutely not. That's not what it means. Is it wrong for a Christian to abstain from calling it Easter? Well, it's not wrong for them to abstain that. There are people in our church family that say, you know what, I don't call it Easter. I call it Resurrection Day. You know what? They got the liberty to do that. They call it whatever they wanted to call it. They can call it whatever they want to call it. They're, they're, they're rejoicing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you call it Easter and rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean you're not right with God. It doesn't mean you're not right with God. Listen, there's only one God. There's only one. And if you have faith and you have a clear conscience... You know, some people will go back to, you talk about Christmas, another holiday. You know, so Easter, some Christians get all wrapped around the axle and, 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 and some start despising their brethren and some start judging their brethren because some of them are weak in faith and some are strong in faith. And, and listen, the same thing happens at Christmas. Shocker alert, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. I know that, I know, I know for some of you, you probably won't be back now. Santa Claus is also not real. I know, I know that's a shocker. So, so there's a passage, right? If, if you're, I, I got a funny story to connect with this and then I'll wind it down. But Jeremiah chapter 10, you know, there's a passage in Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 3 to 4. And it says that the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth down a tree out of the forest 
and the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe, and they deck it with silver and with gold, and they fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. And when you read that, that sounds a whole lot like we do what we do at Christmas, a Christmas tree. And man, I tell you, one year in my marriage, you know, I, I was going to be the spiritual leader of our home and, and kind of say, you know, we're not putting up one of those pagan Christmas trees because Jeremiah chapter 10 tells us that we, you know, we ain't going to go to the woods and knock down a tree with an axe and decorate it with silver and gold and, and all those different things. And, you know, that was the most beautiful Christmas tree we've ever had, I think, that year. I don't <laughs> think I spent more on decorations that year than I've spent since then. You know, it was this wonderful tree in our living room. Amen? My wife's on the front row testifying to that. Amen, amen. Yeah. Yeah, man, I told her I wasn't going to put one up. Man, that's vain custom and idolatry, and that thing looked really good that year. I'll just be honest with you. It was the most fantastic tree I've ever seen. The point is, look, if you, if you do that, it, it doesn't make you more or less spiritual. Some people don't put up Christmas trees. They, they put up different types of things to celebrate the birth of Christ. Well, they got liberty to do that. It, it's liberty. And so, and so here's the key. Here's where we're trying to get, and we'll get done. I know, I know you're ready for lunch, but look, here's the key that you need to get. Your individual liberty can never be used to make a legalistic standard for other people. Your individual liberty can never be used to make a legalistic standard for other people. And, and if you look at Galatians chapter 4 and verse, verses 10 through 11, listen, P Paul had this struggle with the churches in Galatia. Man, they got saved, they started walking with Christ, and then they went back to an Old Testament system of, of tradition and religion. He, he, he rebukes them in the Galatian letter. He says in, in verse 10, you observe days and months and times and years. In other words, you, you, you're filling your calendar with, with these requirements that you think are making you spiritual. And he says, I'm afraid of you, lest I've bestowed upon you labor in vain. In other words, they were moving back to the law, which is the very thing that Christ had freed them from. It's the very thing that Christ had freed them from. And so what we see in this passage that we're reading this morning, we have some people esteeming one day as holy to them. And we see someone else esteeming a day different or not even esteeming that day holy. And the truth is both are right because every man needs to be persuaded in his own mind. As long as it's not violating scripture. Man, I don't see any celebration of birthdays in the Bible. And yet, we celebrate those things, right? We celebrate the birth of Christ. We celebrate birthdays in our family. Listen, do whatever before the Lord as long as you have a clear conscience and it's not violating scripture. And then here's the, here's the you know, and I just, let me, just give me grace here. Look, when you pray and thank God for your steak and potato, God blesses that. Because you're giving thanks to God for it. And when you pray and thank God for your garden salad and your tofu, man, listen, God blesses that. And you're no less more spiritual or less spiritual. Whatever you decide for your life, man, it's between you and the Lord. Have a clear conscience. And so here's the last point, point number four, the lordship of our liberty. The lordship of our liberty. And here's, here's, here's where it all sums up. Verse 7 says, none of us liveth to himself. And no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore die. We are the Lord's. For this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be the Lord, both of the living and the dead. Here's the point. If someone is serving the Lord with the best of their ability, in strong faith, 
or weak faith, God's going to take care of them. God's going to take the weak Christian in the faith, and if they'll stay humble, they'll grow to have strong faith. And God will take the person strong in faith, and, and by the grace of God and their humility, they'll learn to love their brother and not despise their brother that's weak in faith. It doesn't matter where you are. The point is, if you're just serving the Lord to the best of your ability, where you are, God will take care of you, okay? Because the truth is, ultimately, God's going to judge. Do you understand that? The judgment seat of Christ, God himself will judge. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul had this problem with the Corinthians because they had a problem with him. And, and this is a unique letter, man, when you read 1 Corinthians. But, but, but they were continually judging Paul. They were questioning his apostleship. They were questioning his ministry. He says in, in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 3, With me it's a small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yeah, judge not my own self, for I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. The point is, listen, man, as it relates to things that aren't clearly scriptural and biblical, you better be careful when you pass judgment. Because there's a, there is a God that will judge, and what he's going to do is he will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. He will make manifest the counsel of the heart. You can't judge a man's heart. And if a man in a pure heart and conscience before the Lord exercises his liberty to do some things or not do some things, you have no clue. You have no clue. You're not God. The only thing that can discern a man's heart is God himself and the word of God. That's it. That's it. That's the only thing that can discern a man's heart. And so here's the point. Here's the point for us today as we, as we get done with this first section of, of Romans 14. How you live reflects on the Lord. And, and so if you're going to exercise liberty, you need to understand that the, how you exercise your liberty, it reflects on the Lord. Because you belong to the Lord. You belong to the Lord in this life. Oh, and by the way, how you die also reflects on the Lord. How you die reflects on the Lord. You see, you see in Acts chapter 8, you see Stephen, who is martyred, who's standing and preaching God's word, and they didn't like his message, so they stoned him. You know, instead of their rebellion against God, they stoned his messenger. By the way, that happens all the time. Early in Acts chapter 5, you see Ananias and Sapphira, who, who manipulate uh, the circumstances in their favor, they lie to God about an offering, they die. Well, they die as backslidden Christians. Stephen dies as a Christian full of faith, walking in the will of God. Here's my point. How you live matters, but how you die matters too. I had to, I had to go to two funerals this weekend. I didn't have to go. I wanted to go. Two men of God that passed away last week both of which had the testimony that not only did they know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they served Jesus Christ with their life. They impacted their family for the gospel's sake, and they had a tremendous testimony for Christ. And when they died, well, it reflected their life and what they thought of the Lord. You see, you need to live right so you can die right. You need to live right so you can die right. You see, there are some Christians that don't live right and when they die, it doesn't reflect positively on the Lord. It reflects negatively on the Lord. Because they die 
because they're backslidden, because they're making stupid decisions, because they hadn't walked with God for years and years and years. Listen, how you live really matters. It shows who's Lord of your life. And so whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. You're going to influence somebody, and somebody's going to influence you. So as we close, here are some questions that are going to help govern our liberty a little bit. Number one, am I doing this thing, whatever this thing is? I'm eating meat offered to idols. I'm observing a day and making it holy. Am I doing this thing unto the Lord? And the converse statement is also, or question is also an important question. Am I not doing this? And by not doing it, am I not doing it unto the Lord? In other words, is the reason I'm doing or not doing this because of the Lord? Now, sometimes it's not the Lord. We just want to fulfill our fleshly lusts. So God says, listen, are you doing this unto the Lord? Number two, by doing this, whatever this is, can I give thanks unto the Lord? And also, by not doing this, not partaking in this, can I give thanks unto the Lord for not for not doing this. And, and listen, man, the, the minute you look at those questions and you say, that ought to be a flat standard for everybody, you've entered into the world of legalism. You've entered into the world of legalism. Third question. By doing this, whatever this is, would this cause a weak Christian to stumble? And some of you need to highlight that one. Because as strong Christians, you have a biblical responsibility not to live in a way that just pleases you. And, and by the way, if you're strong in the faith, you can receive that statement. You can receive that statement. Will what I'm about to do cause a weak Christian to stumble in their faith? Well, I didn't really think about that. Well, it's time to start thinking about it. Because you that are strong in, a faith, in faith, you have a responsibility to your weaker brethren. Your responsibility is not to despise them, and it's not to make them stumble. Oh, come back next week, because we'll get more into that. Lastly, would doing this thing cause an unsaved person to reject the gospel? Now listen, the truth is, it doesn't matter what you do or don't do, you're going to get blamed. You're going to get judged by both the lost world and the saved. Do you understand that? So you're not going to live in a way that absolutely does never, get, never gets an accusation from the lost world. But if the accusation from the lost world to you is the message, well, I just don't like what you're saying, I don't like the gospel, I don't like God, whatever. But you're living out what you believe by faith, well then let it be. But listen, if what you're doing is going to limit your opportunity to share the gospel with someone and your liberty becomes a stumbling block for your presentation of the gospel, then I would have to ask, is it worth doing it? Is it worth exercising your liberty? Isn't winning people to Christ more important? Isn't making disciples more important? Isn't being mature in the faith kind of counting the cost and sacrifice to, to follow Jesus? I mean, when we had kids, man, our lives changed. You know, we, we tell our, our daughters all the time, before you got here, we had a lot of fun. You know? I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying, we, we pitch it across the plate at our house, man. There ain't a whole lot of we just kind of keep it black and white. And we were like, you know, when, before you got here, I mean, we'd, we want to go get ice cream at midnight. We get in the car and go. We did it whatever we wanted to do. And now you're here. I mean, what in the world? So now I've got to take care of you. And we're glad to take care of you. But what, that, what that's done is it's cost us some freedom, 
some liberty, some preference. But it's for their sake. It's for their benefit. We've got to have it in the body of Christ. And so listen, if you're here this morning, number one, if you're not saved, I want you to know that Jesus Christ loves you. He died on the cross for your sin. He wants to save you from your sin. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can do that today. Number two, if you're here this morning, and maybe you come from a background or in your mind, man, you have a legalistic standard that nobody's meeting. Maybe the Word of God has challenged you a little bit to say, maybe your standard's not biblical. You need to grow a little bit in your faith. The third group is those that may be strong in their faith, but are despising their weaker brethren. God, God's put us in a body together. And so we need to appreciate the different levels of maturity. Amen? I'm thankful for my children. My children aren't mature yet, but I'm thankful for my children. And they do some stuff that gets on my nerves. Hence the gray hair and the balding head. But I love them. I love my children. And it's worth, it's worth the sacrifice to see them grow. It's worth the sacrifice.